Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. I'm Sam DeCanio. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society and a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. Our guest today is Jacob Shapiro. He's a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University, where he also co-directs the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. He studies conflict, economic and political development, and security policy. And his most recent book, which we're going to be discussing today, is Small Wars, Big Data, The Information Revolution in Modern Conflict, which was just recently published with Princeton University Press. Jake, thanks for being on the podcast. You're very welcome, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you give us a little um, background on how you got interested in this project? Yeah, absolutely. So the book really stems from the frustration that my co-authors, uh, Ellie Berman, uh, who just finished up as the chair of the Econ Department at UC San Diego, and Joe Felter, who's uh, currently serving in the Pentagon but was still uh, active duty in the U.S. Army when we started this, um, we were uh, talking about the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2007, 2008, and we were really frustrated with the ways that people were talking about and thinking about those conflicts. We felt like uh, these were obviously very different wars than the ones that most of the international relations literature was thinking about, uh, which were wars between relatively equal powers, uh, both in terms of wars between states, but also the kind of rural African civil wars, which kind of dominated the thinking of the social science community that was studying civil war at that point in time. And the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq just looked very different to us. And so we wanted to set out to try and understand what went on inside those asymmetric conflicts the one where one side was just wildly more powerful than the other, but for various reasons couldn't uh, bring the conflict to an end. So the, the book is focused on studying these asymmetric conflicts. Um, why do you, are there any reasons why it's specifically important to study this kind of warfare as opposed to sort of the conventional wars between great powers that, that occupied so much time during, during the 20th century? Why should, why should people be interested in studying asymmetric conflicts? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think there fundamentally are two reasons. One is, if you look at the vast majority of conflicts uh, since World War II, uh, they've been asymmetric conflicts. And the vast majority of people who have died in battle since World War II and civilians who've been killed in the course of being caught in the middle of conflicts, uh, they've died in the course of asymmetric conflicts. And the evidence on this is just like totally unambiguous. And so if you want to think about studying the, the phenomenon of social interaction, which is generating the majority of the conflict-related suffering in the world, uh, this is the, the place to study. So that's kind of the first issue. The second issue is that if you, if you look over the period, at least since 1975, uh, the U.S., uh, Western European countries that are part of NATO and other major developed countries are getting involved in military interventions overseas at the rate of between two and four a year every year over that period. And um, the number that are ongoing is steadily increasing over that time period because places where Western powers go in take a really long time for them to get out. So the mission in uh, Kosovo, uh, in Bosnia, actually, starts, um, you know, 1996, and there's still 900 NATO and now European Union forces uh, there. And so as a policy matter, these things seem to just not be something that the U.S. and NATO policy community is that good at addressing. And we think that maybe by understanding them better, we can more effectively 
I intervene, and the historical record shows like unambiguously that the interventions are going to happen. And the politicians have lots of reasons for doing them. And so then uh, we're very interested in understanding what's the fundamental strategic interaction in these places, what works and what doesn't, so that if the intervention is going to happen, it can be carried out more effectively. So in these asymmetric conflicts, mm -hmm. the opponents that we often face are often tend to be relatively technologically unsophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the U.S. military and Western militaries more generally often are spending huge amounts of money on extremely technologically complex weapon systems like the F-35. The U.K. recently uh, is, is currently building two new carrier strike groups. Um, that I believe are costing around six billion dollars, six billion pounds. Do you think that there's a mismatch between the salience of these asymmetric conflicts, the fact that they're occupying so much attention and effort, and the the priorities of the militaries that that Western countries are are using um, in, for for contemporary conflicts? So I I think there is definitely in the context of these conflicts. Um, a big difference in the nature of the technologies that the two sides are using. Uh, I think the thing, the way to, th the way I at least think about these defense expenditures on these very high-end, incredibly complex, super expensive systems, is they are insurance against the unlikely event of a conflict with another state. And they can be applied to asymmetric conflicts. There are other cheaper technologies which could be applied as well. But those other cheaper technologies can't also be applied to a potential conflict with a pure competitor. The outcome of which could be far more catastrophic than, than simply an, an asymmetric conflict. Exactly, exactly. And so the, you know, the consequences of performing poorly in these kinds of con conflicts is um, tragic for the populations that um, you know, we're trying to help. Um, but for, uh, for you know, the powers which are doing the intervening, the consequences of performing poorly are not that great. And so if you're, you know, if you're going to take risk somewhere as a matter of like, you know, really big picture strategy, you want to take it in how you address these conflicts, not how you address the potentially devastating, more devastating. Um, so the, the book advances a, a theory of asymmetric conflicts. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about this? It sort of it focuses on complexity, information, and the role of civilians in these conflicts. So can you can you tell us what's the theory, the general theoretical argument the book makes? Absolutely. So the the basic theoretical argument is that the constraint on who wins or loses in a given village or a valley is not uh, who can bring more force to bear because by definition, in an asymmetric conflict, one side has vastly more force to bring to bear than the other. The question is, can it bring that force to bear against uh, the the enemy, the rebels, in in our uh, in our formulation, in a targeted and precise way? And being able to do that depends on being able to get information from the civilian population. And so what we think about is we think about a civilian population that has some political preferences, so it cares about who controls the territory, but it also cares about the material resources it will get if one side or the other controls the territory, and it cares about uh, the risks that it might face if it shares information with the government about the rebels. So you have this civilian population with political preferences, and then you have a government which wants to use some combination of providing services to the population and exerting military force against the rebels 
to suppress uh, insurgent activity. And you have rebels who, for political reasons that we leave kind of undefined, want to impose costs on the government. And okay, so, so, and so the focus is really, you're really focused on, on how to change the calculus of what civilians are doing in these conflicts, given that we can't really do that much from a tactical perspective to influence the political preferences of the actual insurgent groups. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we're kind of taking it at them. We're not, we're not in this work studying what leads them to want to make political settlements or come to the bargaining table. We're studying what makes them, given that they've decided to fight, invest more or less in a given piece of territory. And that decision for them is predicated on what do they think the civilians will tolerate. Because the civilians have some level of violence by uh, the rebels that is sufficiently costly for them that they would rather inform to the government than accept that level of violence. And so what the insurgents uh, do in, in our formulation is they bring violence, if they have the sufficient manpower and resources, up to the level at which the civilians uh, decide, no, this is too much, we'd be better off with the government in charge, and they then inform to the government which can use its advantage in firepower and, and maneuver to go out and kill or capture the insurgents. So this sounds like it's a fairly general theoretical approach that's, that's applicable to a sort of a wide range of different insurgencies. Um, so in that sense, I, I could see that being a very sort of a helpful way of, of approaching the study of asymmetric conflicts. Do you, do you see any drawbacks to this, to this way of, of approaching the study of conflict? So I, th I mean, I think the, the the benefit I think to your point is that it, it focuses attention on, um, on the non-combatants and the effects of, of combat on them, and on the the competitive governance struggle that's going on between uh, the government and the rebels, and um, I think that's a useful frame for pol thinking about policy, because it takes you out of thinking it's about uh, it's about just the other side's combatants. And brings into play the other player, which ultimately, you know, when the, the the U.S. and Western powers intervene, part of the motivation is generally to help and and do things that we think are going to be better for the populations that are in the places that are where, where the intervening is happening. Um, I think the downside to it, um, to the extent there is one, is we definitely um, we. We don't, we're not in this book thinking about this whole other strategy for how you fight a counterinsurgency, which is uh, extreme levels of violence, population displacement, and oppression. And historically, that is how many of states have addressed uh, counterinsurgency, and that's how many states were built. And so I think to the extent that there's a downside to this approach, it's that we are not thinking about like this other extreme. Uh, which is one that's prominent in the historical record. Um, so one of the things that, that strikes me is that in many ways, this emphasis on how you influence um, civilians and their responses to insurgent groups or mm -hmm. to, or to uh, the government that you're trying to support, um, in certain ways it seems as though these vast technological advantages that Western militaries have over insurgent groups are not actually helping in these conflicts because what's essential is not the, the, the dominance in terms of firepower 
is act can actually be a ne have a negative effect on the conflict if you wind up killing people that are civilians, people that are not actually directly involved in the conflict. Um, and so I, I guess one of the things that I found incredibly interesting about the book is it's it seems like it is trying to fill a, a, a fairly big gap in our understanding of how to interact with 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 civilian groups. Um, so the 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 role of information is critical to this mm -hmm. theory, and some of the some of the really interesting elements of the book focus on cell phones and communications technology. Right. So, what did you what what do you see as the role of, of communications technology, and how was cellular technology um, used in the book to sort of help advance the arguments that you're that you're making about about civilians and their interactions with militaries? For for sure. So in in the context of the the book, the way we we think about this and talk about this is that you, you've got this civilian who's making a, a trade-off, a choice between sharing information and not. And in his or her calculus is what's the risk that I face for doing so. And the way cell phones fundamentally come into that equation is they make it much safer for civilians to bring information that they might have about what insurgents are doing to the government. Instead of having to meet face-to-face -face or pick up a landline, which is easy to tap, they can discreetly text a message or place a phone call in the middle of the night from a room deep inside their own house where no one's going to see them going into the police station. No one's going to observe them doing it. So the risk of retaliation is much lower. And what I think is interesting about uh, ICT in, this, in the context of insurgency is that's not the only effect that it has. There's another effect of bringing in cellular communications in the context of an insurgency, like many other effects. But one is that it provides all kinds of options for the insurgents, for the rebels. It creates new ways that they can fuse uh, improvised explosive devices. It creates new options for them for coordinating ambushes and managing their personnel. And so uh, there's a set of ways in which it might actually help insurgents organize. And in fact, many governments around the world um, in kind of the 2005 to 2010 period when they had uh, insurgency problems would shut down the cellular network in the areas where the insurgents were organizing exactly because they thought it was a net benefit to the other side. Now, if, if you think about uh, that theory, which I described where the civilian information sharing is the key thing, and the, the rebels are thinking about that when they decide how much violence to, to produce, then you would think that when you install cell phone coverage, uh, violence should come down, at least locally. And if you thought that what was going on was it was creating all these options for rebels to make deadlier weapons and set ambushes and whatnot, then violence should go up. And what we see is that systematically it comes down. And then you start to see these really interesting things which rebels in different places uh, do regarding ICT. Um, because look, pe people like having their cell phones. They like to be able to call. And uh, particularly in conflict-affected places, there tend to be significant diasporas. So lots of family members who've gone abroad to make money and send resources home. And so there's like even more demand than in other places to be able to get on the phone and talk. And uh, insurgents, for exactly the reasons we've been talking about, don't want to piss off the population by shutting down the cell phone network. So, so what's the trade-off? And different groups come to different ones uh, the, the one that I think is the most interesting is the, the Taliban in Afghanistan basically um, set a standard in many parts of the country 
that the cell phone network just had to be turned off between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. And so they would they would go to the operators and basically say, look, you know, that's a, that's a really nice cell phone tower that you have over there. It would be a real shame if anything happened to it. Um, so maybe you want to think about turning it off at night. So they would turn they would they would request the cell phone towers be turned off at night because they didn't want tips being sent to coalition forces specifically in when it's dark. Well, they they they, they would move around at night, so they didn't want tips to be shared when they were moving around. Um, they also, I suspect, uh, didn't want their soldiers talking on the phone when they were moving around, right? Because like, look, even. Even the Israeli Defense Forces, which is a very professional army, when they were uh, fighting in Lebanon in 2005, Hezbollah was using the cell phone activity of Israeli soldiers to triangulate on their movements. And so even that very disciplined army couldn't keep its soldiers off their cell phones in the middle of like a fairly intense combat environment. And so I suspect that part of it is also the Taliban just didn't want their people on the phones. And they're... There are there there are um, actually some examples which uh, a Canadian general showed my co-author Ellie um, uh, a few weeks back when Ellie was giving a talk, where they found uh, basically Taliban notes in safe houses, which said like don't use your cell phone in the safe house, and especially do not call the following numbers. So even the Taliban struggle to prevent people from from getting on their cell phones, making calls, checking Facebook. Totally, yes. Using the cell phones. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. Don't text and rebel or something like that. <laughs> um, so one of you have this very interesting story about a student of yours mm-hmm. um, who was in one of your classes, and you were, you were discussing the use of, of cell phone technology, um, and he raised his hand, and he had a he had a, a slight anecdote to, to mention. Could you, so so can you tell us what did this student what did this student have to say? Who was he? What did what was the story that he had to tell about cell phones? Yeah. So 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 uh, so this was a student in our uh, masters in public policy class. So these are mid career students who come in kind of fifteen to twenty years into their career, and uh, and this particular student had been a special operations task force commander. Uh, in Habania, uh, Iraq, um, which is an air base, used to be a, a, a British air base uh, in Iraq. It's kind of on a major transit route uh, through western uh, Iraq out into out, out to Syria. And, um, and they basically set up a cell phone tower in order to be able to de-conflict operations with the local police. They wanted to be able to make sure that when they went out on raids, the only people with guns in the area were themselves or the insurgents because they didn't want to get into firefights with the local police. And so um, it just so happened that, uh, that uh, this, this uh, student um, had on his team someone who had been a, uh, a um, basically had worked in telecommunications. And so he started talking uh, to this, uh, this team member about what could they do to set up cellular communications. And so they reached out through a series of connections to uh, to the telco, which had uh, the license for that area, and basically brokered a deal to get them to put up a cell phone tower on their base. And they did a bunch of things to get the engineers uh, from the telecommunications company out to the base safely. Uh, they put up this tower, and as soon as it goes up, 
uh, they started to get in a whole lot of intelligence. And this, this, this surprised him. Um, so right after like he raised this in class, uh, a couple days later in my office hours, we sat down and we looked at the data from the area around his base. And like, sure enough, like here's the date that they turned on the tower. And then over the next couple months, there's this big drop in violence. And so, you know, that was, that was like a really nice moment of uh, validation because I'd had like no idea about that story when we did the research. And it turned out that the thing that we were seeing on average uh, had been like very true for one student of mine. And when you see things like that, it's like, it's A, it's really fun in class because then everyone else thinks like, maybe you know what you're talking about. Um, but it's, it's, it's great because it, it, it makes like the abstract stuff that's in the regressions and the analysis, it makes it very real and gives you confidence that the mechanism is right. Absolutely. Um, so this is a pretty compelling story about, mm -hmm. about cell phone communications and, and the way uh, it impacted um, violence on the ground. Is, was there a, did insurgents have a response to this? So there are, you're, you're, all of these tips begin coming through about the location of attacks, the location of IEDs. Were there any strategies that insurgents in any of the countries that you that you examine, what did they do in response? Yeah, so my, my student, Andrew Shaver, has a, has a really nice paper on this where he works with um, mostly British data from the city of Basra in southern Iraq. And there what, what Andrew finds is that in the period um, when there were major levels of uh, conflict between British forces and local militias, you saw a huge increase in efforts to jam the tip lines with fake tips. Um, and Andrew spent a bunch of time talking to people who worked the tip lines, and what they basically told him is, um, yes, uh, the number of false calls was sometimes really huge, uh, but they got pretty good very quickly at figuring out what was fake and what was real. So how would they figure that out? So some of it was they would start to recognize voices because there's a limited number of operators on the tip line and there's a limited number of people who are willing to work for the insurgency to call in fake tips. And so they would start to recognize that, oh, this is, this is someone I've heard before and they're not credible. Mm -hmm. uh, but they would also get good at asking questions which would separate out the person who was telling a lie from someone who was telling the truth. Interesting. And this is like this, is, like this is a core skill like cops everywhere have, right? You ask certain kinds of questions, and the person who's lying to you kind of hesitates, doesn't get them right. And from what the operators and supervisors of the operators told Andrew, um, they were able pretty quickly to get good at sorting out what was real from what was fake. Interesting. Now there were for sure times where the lines were abused, and in the course of doing the research, we heard some really horrible stories about people successfully using the tip lines to carry out local vendettas. So they would call in a tip that they would make credible against someone that they were in a business dispute with, and bad things would happen to that person. So that for sure happened at points in time. Um, but our sense from talking to lots of people is that on average, uh, they got quite good at sorting out what was real from what was fake. Interesting. Um, were there any differences in how effective uh, these kinds of tips were. Is, 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 is it more effective? Was, was the experience in Iraq different from the experience in, say, Afghanistan or another country? Were, the, were these tip lines and cell phone communications um, more helpful in certain areas than, than others? I, I think it's really, it's hard to quantify that because mm -hmm. the scale of the violence is different in different places. So I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. 
question. Um, what I can tell you is that there are a bunch of ways in which telecommunications uh, may be shifting in the other direction, uh, in the sense that, um, so, so you've now got like pretty complete coverage in most places in most parts of the world, even highly conflict-affected places, um, because the communications providers can put up towers fairly, in a fairly secure way, and because, as I described, like in lots of places, the insurgents would, like the population wants the communications, and so they don't want to shut that down. There's now, though, as more bandwidth comes in and people begin to use their phones for uh, more social phenomena, there's now opened up a whole set of ways in which um, uh, phones can enable communication and organization around local disputes and local conflicts. And so you're seeing a lot of really awful stuff enabled by cellular communication in different parts of the world. Um, what the net effect is on this kind of violence, I don't know. Um, but it's for sure become a more complicated picture than it was in the period that we're mostly analyzing uh, in the context of the book, which is when the coverage is first coming in. So the, the book title, um, Small Wars, Big Data, uh, might lead some people to think that this is a book that's mainly a quantitative right. analysis. Um, when, when people hear the term big data, they tend to think of Silicon Valley engineers sort of yeah. Examining examining large data sets, sort of removed from from the actual events on the ground, but the book itself actually draws on a, a wide variety of data sources. And um, could you could you just uh, talk maybe a bit about some of the other some of the other sources of data and the the how involved um, you and your co-authors were on the ground in some of these actual meetings with with strategists and with with the military personnel that were actually conducting missions. Sure. So so when, when we think about big data in the context of, of the title for the book, we don't mean data that is so large you can't operate it on it on a desktop computer. Right? What, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about bringing together many, many different kinds of information from many different countries and many different studies to try and tell the overall story of one type of social interaction. So we're we're kind of like we're we're abstracting up a level in some sense, and so uh, we're using in the book we're talking about uh, case studies, we're using interviews, uh, we're relying on large-scale public opinion surveys, we're relying on administrative data. Uh, there's a little bit of evidence in there from uh, digital trace data, um, from uh, call data records in different countries, but. Fundamentally, um, it's that triage across multiple sources that we're thinking of as the thing that's like big. It's not any particular data set is like, you know, petabytes worth of data. Um, the thing that enabled us to do that is over many years, um, uh, Ellie, Joe, and I have engaged with policymakers in different countries in a whole bunch of ways. Um, so Joe, as I mentioned, uh, was uh, still on active duty in the military when we started the book. He was in 2010 and 11. Uh, a direct report to the commander of the International uh, Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan running basically in an internal think tank that was thinking about how should they like fight the war, how should they manage it, and both Ellie and I spent time uh, with Joe in Afghanistan trying to contribute to that effort. Um, we have spent a lot of time over the years talking with people in the policy community about their problems, what they can do with data, what we think the information is showing them, what can be learned from different conflicts. And in, in the course of doing that, what we've been able to do is develop the relationships which let us understand 
Like, what's their day-to-day -day job? What does that mean about the biases in the data? And what does that mean about how programs were implemented so that we can figure out across lots of different contexts natural experiments which let, it, let us get in a credible statistical way at the causal effect of different policies. And we then do that, we get some results, we go back, we share them with the policy community, and they spend time with us explaining the next set of problems. And we learn about the next set of policies and processes. And that like iterative process enables us to apply um, the quantitative approaches in a much more effective way than we could ever do if we didn't have those relationships into the community. And it also lets us understand where there are pockets of data that we can bring out for academic research, which will inform our understanding uh, in new ways. So, so the book is actually analyzing data where, where you're directly involved with a lot of the policymakers and a lot of the, the people that are sort of on the ground making, making local decisions about how to spend money, how to allocate resources. Um, seems like a, a really interesting approach as opposed to just relying on downloading a data set from a source that you that you don't actually have any interaction with. For sure, yeah, and you, you could never do that in this space because, or at least I mean, you could do it, but I'd be very nervous about doing that because every all these administrative data that we're working with, there are all kinds of warts and biases and ways in which uh, the data are being manipulated strategically by the people who are collecting them not because they're like bad people, but because they think certain things are important at one point in time or another. They have career concerns. And there's all kinds of like funky missingness and certain things don't get recorded reliably or the definition of a field in their database uh, changes from one month to the next, but that's not documented anywhere. And so you, you have to get in and spend time with people to really understand that stuff in order to be able to have confidence in the quantitative analysis. And um, you know, in our experience, the way that works best is uh, when it's a two-way street. So when you say we're involved, it's not that we're like trying to shape what people are doing. We think we have this toolkit for learning some things about the world, which they might want to know. And so we share that with them. And in exchange, they share with us information about the, the policies that they're working on and the data that they've developed, which let us do better research. And it's been, for us at least, it's like very productive two-way street. Interesting. Um, so the, the book is also interested in looking at questions associated with poverty and development aid. For sure. Um, can you tell us a bit about the argument it makes regarding uh, regarding the relationship between poverty, violence, and and assistance that's that's provided in some of these some of these conflict areas? For sure. So for for a long for a long time, there was this idea um, in policy communities, uh, in various international organizations and governments, that um, poverty was a key cause of conflict, and that by alleviating poverty, you could reduce conflict. And that led to um, kind of a reallocation of development resources towards conflict areas, which concerned us a little bit, because it wasn't obviously like the most efficient way to spend development dollars if your goal was to create and foster economic development. So there's like there's like a whole other debate we could have about whether development assistance actually works at all. But assuming that it does, one thing you see is that over time, the share of total uh, official development assistance going to countries in conflict kind of moves up and down. And at certain periods, it's as high as 40 or 50 percent of ODA in the world is going to countries that are in conflict. 
so that's money that could be spent on development in other places as well. And so we felt like it was really important to understand the relationship between development assistance and conflict and to assess whether this relationship that people had assumed between poverty and conflict showed up in the kinds of asymmetric wars that we're studying. And what did you find? Yeah, so, so what, we, what we found was basically um, that the posited relationship probably was not there in the, in the sense that um, it is absolutely true that in the cross-section, poorer places were more likely to have violent conflict. But there was very little evidence that we could find that reducing poverty led to reductions in violence. In fact, we found some evidence to the contrary. In places where uh, unemployment uh, comes down, um, in a number of countries, violence seems to go up. And what is the explanation? What are some of the explanations for why that relationship might might persist? That seems fairly counterintuitive. For for sure. So 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 one possibility is that um, uh, um, what's going on is that um, uh, the insurgency is not uh, constrained by labor. It's constrained by information. And so when the economy gets better, more people have jobs the cost of information for the government goes up. And so they have some budget of things that they're doing to earn information, either providing services or directly paying people for it. And as the economy gets better, the value of those things they're doing goes down a little bit. And so then the level of violence people will tolerate goes up a little bit. And so then insurgents respond strategically by increasing uh, violence. Um, Another possibility, and one that we don't really explore in the book, but I think is an interesting topic for future research, is that in many, many conflicts, um, uh, being a rebel is not a full-time occupation. It's a part-time thing people do because they believe in the cause, like they value it politically. And we have some anecdotes in the book about like different organizations and what we think their share of like full-time versus part-time labor was based on historical sources. Um, but if you're in a world where part of the insurgency are part-timers, then as the economy gets better, and as their wages and their main job go up, they can make a standard like uh, work-leisure trade-off, where in their pace, like substitute for leisure, fighting the good fight for a political cause that they believe in. And so you may actually be, as by making the economy better, you may actually be freeing up time for people to devote to political causes. And in settings where the political cause of choice is rebellion, you may get more violence. Interesting. Um, so the, the book, in addition to sort of examining the effects that aid overall might have on violence, mm -hmm. the book also makes a more specific argument about the effectiveness of large aid projects right. versus small ones. What, what's the argument the book makes regarding regarding those two different types of, of development assistance? For sure. So, so this looking into this was was really motivated by an observation in uh, talking with lots of development professionals that it was extremely hard to execute large scale projects in conflict zones, and you see like re audit report after audit report from organizations like the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, where these big ambitious projects kind of end up in this like hairy, complicated, very corrupt and poorly executed mess. And so that got us thinking, you know, maybe we could do something to understand what kinds of projects 
uh, do more or less to bring down violence. And fortunately in Iraq, there was really good data maintained by the US government about each and every development project that was done. So what we did is we took that data and we asked a simple question, which is when spending on a given type of aid project goes up or down, what happens to violence? And what you see is that when you do that is that spending on small scale targeted aid projects, which are short in duration and provide like concrete things for a local population. Such as, what would be an example? Such as uh, doing a minor, uh, a minor uh, repair to a road or um, uh, refurbishing a well or a water management system in a village or providing uh, salaries for security at a local school for a short period of time. So things like that seem to be associated with more spending on things like that seems to be associated with reductions uh, in conflict, and particularly so under two conditions, when there are uh, forces nearby who can act on information, and when the spending is done um, in a place where there's um, relatively more expertise about how to execute development projects. So that's kind of like small-scale local conditional uh, spending. If you look at the large-scale spending, there's no relationship between increases in spending on large-scale projects and changes in violence. If anything, more spending on large-scale projects uh, predicts more violence, which is not what you would expect if the thing that you were doing with aid was putting people to work in productive activities, which got them out of spending time as insurgents, which was the theory which motivated a lot of these expenditures. So when we look, for example, at US aid spending in Iraq, there's about Depending how you crunch the numbers, there's like three to four billion in small scale spending, spending on small scale projects, which is associated with reduced violence. There's about $37 billion of spending on large scale uh, projects, which is associated with no change in violence or maybe an increase, depending on how you crunch the numbers. And um, there could be like lots of reasons for that, right? It could be that insurgents are targeting it. It could be that the projects are executed whenever you come in and do something big in a way that disrupts local political uh, bargains and so leads to violence. Lots of reasons things could go wrong, um, but there's no evidence that that's like bringing violence down. Um, you know, and if you look in Afghanistan, um, we did some work uh, with USAID recently where the, the big things which didn't reduce stability they are associated with increases in uh, human welfare measured in certain ways. So they are associated with more economic activity. They are associated with better access to healthcare uh, and better access to education. And so it's not that they're, they're not achieving some development purpose, but they're not bringing violence down, which was the motivation for the huge amounts of spending. Because that's money that if you wanted to do pure development could have been spent arguably elsewhere. So did, is there any evidence that the timing of one type of spending versus the other is, is, uh, is relevant? So is, is one po potential mm -hmm. policy implication of this that perhaps you should start with sort of the small-scale projects in order to reduce violence and then follow that with larger-term larger -term projects? Is there any – did you – I mean, there's so, – so that's not something where I can, I can point to like strong kind of quantitative – um, well-identified like causal evidence that that's the case. Um, what I can tell you is if you look across projects and you kind of read the audit reports and spend a little bit of time like trying to get a feel for it, um, in a number of places in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, large-scale projects were executed well. 
those were all places where there was very good local security. Hmm. And so uh, I do think as a matter of kind of like interpreting the evidence that what you suggested is like exactly right. Start small, establish security. Once that security is established, then start to increase the size uh, of the projects, being careful as you do to avoid um, stepping into the middle of pre-existing uh, local political disputes. Interesting. Interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this project created a, a network between academics and policy practitioners? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the one of the things that we did, which I think was was most effective, is uh, over time as we started to do more and more projects and started to get to know more people in the policy community. As uh, graduate students and junior faculty started to get interested in these questions, we started to plug them into the folks that we'd been talking to uh, in the policy community, which like dramatically sped up the development of their professional networks. And so I think my favorite example of a success story here is I had a couple of graduate students who were interested in public opinion research and was talking a few years back to someone from Mercy Corps um, who explained that they had had this large survey uh, in the field in Iraq um, uh, in uh, um, the period immediately before and immediately after uh, Maliki, who had been the prime minister for a long time, resigned. And he was like a notably sectarian uh, figure. So this struck me as like maybe an interesting natural experiment. So I mentioned this to the students and they said, oh, that sounds fantastic. Like, let's get in touch. And so I put them in touch with the people at Mercy Corps who had run the survey, and they got together, wrote one paper on that, and then have since rolled out a series of experiments in surveys in Iraq and elsewhere together, where they're kind of improving both the learning that's possible from what Mercy Corps is doing and advancing their own research agendas in ways that never would have happened otherwise. And so as we've gone through and built out the network, that kind of thing has happened like over and over again. Um, both with respect to executing research like prospectively and also with respect to getting information out that has been collected by various government organizations but was just sitting on a hard drive somewhere not doing anything. And we got that stuff out into the research community. And are there any, uh, so what's the, what, what do you see the next stage of, of this research agenda being? Are you planning on sort of focusing on any specific areas in the future that, that helps use the access to this community that's that's sort of been created as a result of this project? We absolutely are. So we're thinking really about two areas of, of focus, and I'm, I'm not sure which one we'll focus on. We'll probably end up supporting some work in both. Uh, but one is thinking about um, uh, migration and refugee flows and how to help support their successful uh, integration and the development of economic activity in places that they're settling. Uh, because, you know, if you just look at the projections around climate change, uh, the number of people who are going to have to move in the next 30 years is, uh, is, is pretty unbelievable. And so as a policy community, wrapping our head around what can be done to uh, enable those folks to move in ways that aren't disruptive of, of politics in the places they're moving to, very important. Uh, so that's one. And then the other that we're doing some work on is thinking about private sector development in conflict zones. So a lot of the aid spending and a lot of the focus of the aid effort in both uh, where conflict is going on and in post-conflict settings has been around thinking about like big infrastructure and, and whatnot. And we're very interested in what can be done to support uh, local businesses and firms. And so as states uh, start to transition out of conflict, 
making it easier for them to get into a stable post-conflict equilibria where the private sector is starting to take off and drive development. And that's, uh, that requires like a slightly different research focus. And so we're putting the pieces together right now to go after that problem. Great. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. Well, Jake, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Um, the book sounds great. Uh, and I look forward to, to reading these new projects that you're working on. You're very welcome, Sam. Thank you for the opportunity.